Uh, speaking of kids, if you uh, don't know me, uh, my wife and I, we have five kids, uh, ranging uh, from, I got to get these ages right, seven years to 15 years old. And uh, we've got five kids in there. In fact, also prior to, well, prior to planning the church, um, I ran Madison House and I worked with uh, hundreds of kids every week. And so I've got some experience with kids, both my own kids and the kids that I've worked with. And one of the things that I've noticed about kids is kids, different kids respond differently to different types of, of teaching or, or correction or, or discipline. Each kid is unique and responds differently. Some kids are just easy. Like you can just say, hey, here's what I want you to do. And they'll just follow in line and just do it. Uh, those kids are rare. And we like those kinds of kids. Those are the kind of kids we want to welcome in. <clears throat> uh, other kids, you know, you can, uh, you know, you, 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 might, you, might, you might use some other types of, of discipline with them. And you might, you, might, you might raise your voice. You might use some, some discipline with them. And, and they are so shocked that you're raising your voice that they begin to, okay, I'll, I'll do what mom and dad ask. My daughter, uh, her, her, uh, my daughter is, is nine years old. I had to think for a second. She's nine years old. Her name is Ava Rose. She's got beautiful red hair. And uh, my daughter is unique because when I'm trying to have one of those types of conversations with her, like, like, I, like, like it doesn't matter if I yell. It doesn't matter if I do anything else. Because as soon as I just look at her and just say, Ava, she just crumbles. And I don't know if it's her being a girl or, 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 or what it is, but I just say, Ava. And she just and is in tears. Okay, Dad, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. And, and it's, it's great. And I, and I love this. And I don't know about you, but personally, when I was growing up, I didn't respond to the yelling and the arguing. Because if you're going to yell at me and argue with me, like my blood pressure is going to rise and I'm going to go right back at you. And so I remember, you know, there was a time with my mom that, that she had one of those moments with me. I, I know it was surprised you. I did something to make my mom upset once or twice. And, uh, and there's, there's one time where, where her, you know, she got angry. She's yelling at me and we had this above ground pool and she had the pool skim on the stick, you know, cleaning the stuff out. And I remember she chased me around the pool with the skim, trying to get me with the skim. And it was, I just, just picture that. Like how, how fun. <laughs> but I tell you, what would work with my mom every single time? And, you know, parents, you know, were, you know, whatever. But when my mom would look at me, and say, Kevin, I'm disappointed. Like, boom, I lost it. That was me. Like, part of that, I guess, is part of, uh, probably being a little bit of a people pleaser. But the moment my mom said, Kevin, I'm disappointed. Like, I was crushed. I was wrecked. Mom, I am so sorry. My wife's listening and taking notes. All I have to do is say, Kevin, I'm disappointed. No, no, don't shame me after the service, please. But... You know, the reality of it is, is when you love somebody, when you care for somebody, you're going to do what you can to get your message across to them. And sometimes it requires us to yell and scream. And sometimes it just requires us to say, you know what? I'm disappointed. But when you love someone, you, you figure out what it takes to, to get the message across to them. You don't keep trying the same thing to no avail. You don't quit on them. You, you pursue them and you try different ways to connect with them. So if you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, to find the book of Daniel, just open up the Bible to the middle. You'll probably see the book of Psalms, uh, which actually looks like peace Psalms. And if you just hang a right a couple of books, you'll find the book of, of Daniel. 
Uh, we are um, in a series that we've called uh, Stand, and this idea about how we are to stand for God. And today we're going to title this message, uh, Stand Humbly Before God. And what's going to be unique about Daniel chapter 4 is uh, we've seen that Daniel is written from the perspective of Daniel himself. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, Daniel's writing and saying, hey, this is what's happened. Here's what I can tell you happened to this. But Daniel chapter 4 is different because it's not written from Daniel's perspective. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 was written by Nebuchadnezzar, who's the, the king of that day. Now, what we know about Nebuchadnezzar as you know, that King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi as I like to call him, um, he was the most powerful man in the world. You might call him the president of the United States or, you know, he's, he's the most powerful man in the entire world. And, and, and we know that, that he's gone into these countries and he's taken people, he take them captive. He's brought exiles into his country and he's kind of been, uh, he's kind of the world dominator at that point. And what we also know about Nebuchadnezzar, is, is chapters, or, or chapters 1, 2, and 3. We've seen God at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God showing himself to, to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in Daniel chapter 1, uh, we know that Nebuchadnezzar took 10,000 of the brightest young people out of Israel and took them into Babylon and, and started indoctrinating them with Babylonian culture uh, and Babylonian ways. And, and there was three young boys Four young boys, Daniel and his three friends. And they said, you know what? We will go to your Babylonian school. We will learn uh, your Babylonian education. We will do this. But here's what we won't do. We won't eat the king's food. And they make a stand. And God blessed their faithfulness. God gave those four boys greater wisdom than any of the other young people in in that area. And the king noticed. And the king saw, hey... There's something different about these boys. They, they are obedient to their God, and God blessed them with greater wisdom and knowledge than anybody else. And so he began to see, hey, God is at work. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, he dreams a very weird dream. He dreams a dream that there's a, a statue with his head was made of gold, and his, his chest and his arms were made of silver. And his, his midsection and his thighs were made of bronze. His legs were made of iron. And his feet were made with, with iron and clay. And in his dream, there's this large stone that comes. And it smashes down the statue. And, and breaks the statue up into to, to small little pieces. And then the wind blows and takes all those pieces away. So there's no remnant of that statue anymore. And Daniel interpreted that dream. And Daniel said, King, you are the head of gold. You are are great. You're the greatest king on this earth. But king, understand this. There's going to be other kingdoms that are going to come after you. There'll be another kingdom, and then another, and then another. And ultimately, there's only one kingdom that's going to stand because it's greater than all the other kingdoms. And that's the kingdom of God. Remember Daniel, uh, it was almost as if God was was inviting Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, whatever you invest in, it's going to crumble. Nebuchadnezzar, you have an opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. And here again, you see God revealing himself. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to get on my side and start serving me. Daniel chapter 3, a bunch of years later, King Nebuchadnezzar, he decided, you know, I don't want to be just a head of gold. I don't want to just be the head of gold. I want to be the one king that's going to last forever, the greatest king ever. And so he builds this 90-foot statue of the whole thing of gold. He, he, he takes a, a big statue of himself, and he plates it in gold. And he forces all of the people. He calls all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages. And he says, hey, when you hear the music, you have to fall down and worship 
my, my idol. Worship my image. You have to worship my statue. So remember, uh, this was two weeks ago. Daniel's friends, they refused. And no, we can't worship any other thing other than God himself. So when they wouldn't worship his idol, remember the king threw him into the fiery furnace. And he stoked the furnace so it was seven times hotter than normal. And God saved those boys. God met them in the fire, brought them through the fire. And this is what, this is what Daniel 3 verse 29 says. This is what God is doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse uh, 3 chapter 29... No, chapter 3, verse 29, he says, Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. See, these three chapters, this is something that they have, that Nebuchadnezzar has continued to see. Hey, there is a God who is alive. There is a God who is real. There is a God who is sovereign. And God is desperately doing everything he can to show Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I'm alive. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. I'm in control of all things. And Nebuchadnezzar has seen this time and time again. God at work. God moving. But every time, it's kind of like, like Nebuchadnezzar gives God a little bit of a nod. Okay, sure, you're, you're God. You're, you're doing this thing. But then he reverts back into his pride. Reverse back into, okay, yeah, you're this God, and sure, I'll give you a little bit of nod, but ultimately, I'm the one in control of my destiny. I'm in control of my life. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar continually won't submit. He won't humble himself. He won't trust that God is the one who's ultimately in control of all things. In fact, we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God today. This is what the chapter is about. The fact that God is in control of all peoples, of all kingdoms, of all lives. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar, God is trying to teach him. And there's three things that we're going to see as enemies of, of the, the submission and the humility of standing humble before God. That's pride and shame and fear. This is where instead of trusting that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is calling us to himself, we are going to trust in our own knowledge. We're going to trust in our own works, our own greatness, our own, our own success, our own all these things. And so in Daniel chapter 4, it's a unique perspective because this is, uh, this is Daniel, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing. He's saying, hey, these are the things that I've learned. I've been through some hard times in life, and this is what God has done to reach me, to help me to learn this idea that God is ultimately the one in control of all kingdoms, of all peoples, and all lives. Daniel chapter 4 is where God's finally going to teach Nebuchadnezzar to stand humble before God. So before we, we, we jump in and read, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, just uh, thank you for this opportunity now to open up your word. Uh, God, I'm thankful uh, that we have the opportunity to hear your word today. God, I just, I'm not that great. Uh, I'm just a pastor. I don't have a, uh, great things to tell you, but God, I can open up your word. And God, you would speak to us through your word. And God, I pray that you would give us understanding now. I, I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us deeper in love with you. That, God, you'd help us to understand what uh, the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control of all things. Help us to understand what that means in our lives today. Help us to humble ourselves before the sovereign God, that you would be working in our lives and in our hearts today. God, we love you and praise you. And we, uh, we, we ask this in your name. Amen. 
So this is a long chapter. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask you just to, to lean in and kind of go through the story with me because we've got to understand the story before we can begin to apply it to, to your situation and my, my situation. So it starts out in verse 1. And it says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. See, that right there is significant because Daniel chapter 3, when Daniel made the great, or when, when Nebuchadnezzar made the great image, he, he called all of the same people. He called all the peoples and nations and languages to worship his image. And now he's going back to them and saying, hey, there's something greater I want all these people to hear. And he says, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the most high God of what he has done for me. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is what he's going to show us throughout this chapter. He says in verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. In fact, if you want to just take your, your Bible and circle those two words, where it says, I was at ease and I was prosperous. Because when we find ourselves in a spot that we are at ease and we are prosperous, that is a danger zone for us. It is a danger zone for us to be at a place where we're content in life, where we are, are prospering, where we're, we're growing and we're blessed. Proverbs chapter 16 says, pride comes before the fall. See, we're, we're, when everything is working good in our life, when there's enough money in the bank, when, when, when relationships are going well, when people are speaking highly of us, you know what happens? Is we begin to actually believe them. We believe the things that people say about us. And that's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to think greater of ourselves, to think, hey, look how great you are. Because the moment we begin to do that, we no longer need God. We no longer need to stand humbly and seek God's favor in our life because we can look and say, look how great I am. And that's the danger zone for every one of us. That we would think, I'm just a self-made person. The reason I'm here is because of how great I am. So that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He was at ease. He was prosperous. And that night, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. A dream that was so bad, it made him afraid. He probably woke up in the middle of the night. He probably had the same dream the next night. And so he, he's, uh, he's afraid of this dream. And so he calls all the wise men together. He calls all the wise men in the village uh, in, in Babylon and says, hey, come here. Here's my dream. Tell me what it means. And none of the wise men could give him an interpretation. And finally, it says in verse 8 that Daniel, who's the, the hero of the book of Daniel. Um, no, he's not. He's, he's the messenger of the book of Daniel. God's the hero. And so verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel finally comes in. And, and here's, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel. He says, O Belteshazzar, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirits of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay down on the bed were these. And here's, here's the dream. He says, I saw and beheld a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and it became strong and its top reached towards the heaven and it was visible to the whole ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and, it, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. See that picture? He dreams this, this large 
this large tree is kind of like a skyscraper reaching up towards the heavens. And this tree is beautiful. It's got, it's got great leaves. And so all the animals can come and find shade under it. And it's got great fruit. So all the animals and all, all, all mankind can get food from this tree and get fruit from it. And then the story is going to take a little bit of a, of a twist. An angel shows up. And it says in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay on my bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one. An angel came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and he said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds and its branches, but leave the stump of its roots on the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Here the angel has been speaking about this tree and now he's going to make a transition and start talking about a person. He says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. That means seven years allow this to happen. He says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision is by the word of the holy ones. And here's going to be the theme of this entire passage. If you have your Bible, just go ahead and underline this. Verse 17, it says, To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. See, what Daniel, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is he's saying, all this is happening. All this is happening so that he would know who is really in charge. That he would know who is really sovereign, who's really controlling the things in his life. It's God. The angel is there to say, God is the one who lifts up. God is the one who puts down. You see the same idea about the sovereignty of God in verse 25 and again in verse 32. It's the theme of the passage. And we're going to come back to it in just a second. But let's finish the story. Nebuchadnezzar says, here's my dream. Daniel, tell me the interpretation. And this is where Daniel is in a tough spot. What's he to do? I mean, we know this king. We know he's got rage issues. Remember what we've known about him? Remember when the three boys wouldn't bow down to his image? He soaked the fire seven times hotter. And remember when the wise men in chapter 2, when they couldn't interpret the dream? He said, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb. And I'm going to have you, um, your house is burned down. I'm going to kill you because you can't interpret my dream. This king has rage issues. Daniel's got to understand that. He's got to be a little bit nervous. Like, do I really tell the, the king what it means? Because it's not very good news for him. And the king recognizes, hey, Daniel, you're in a precarious position. Like, are you really going to tell me the truth? And so the king says, the king says, um, Belteshazzar, Daniel, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Daniel answered and said, may the Lord, or my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and the interpretation be for your enemies. See, Daniel's teaching us something about confrontation. He's saying, hey, king, I wish this wasn't for you. I wish this was for your enemies. And he's teaching us something about confrontation because so many times when we think about confrontation, we think about, oh, you're not doing things right and I'm going to take this opportunity just to tell you you're wrong. But Daniel is showing us that true confrontation, effective confrontation, is, 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 is only effective in a loving relationship. 
You've got to have a, a loving and caring relationship with the other person in order to confront them. I mean, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they've got this history of relationship. They've, they've, they've worked together for all these years. And Daniel is cautious. Daniel is nervous about telling interpretation because he cares about Nebuchadnezzar. He loves the guy. And that's, that's just where I would say many confrontations that we have, you know, like Facebook's not the place to have a confrontation. It's just not the place. And, and, and especially in our politically charged day that we're in today, like sometimes it's just better for us to remain silent than to get involved in some of that because it's not effective. We're not being able to show care and concern for other people. We're too busy telling them how wrong they are. And so Daniel, he, he's got care and compassion uh, and he's got a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. And so here's, here's what he says. He says, verse 20, the tree that you saw, that tree that was so great, that was so mighty, that had shade and food, king, that tree is you. O king, you who have, grown, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and it reaches to heaven and your dominion uh, to the ends of the earth. And he's going to continue his interpretation of verse 24. And he says, this is the interpretation, O king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be made with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, this is for seven years, king, that seven years shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, we come back to that whole idea of the sovereignty of God. Hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, it's happening so that you would know that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things. So Daniel says, here's what's going to happen, king. You're going to have your kingdom taken from you and you're going to be given a mind of an animal and you're going you're to eat grass like a, like a cow. In verse 26, he gives them some good news, though. He says, And as it was commanded to you to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, your king shall be confirmed and returned uh, for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. He says, King, this is going to happen for seven years. And, and at that point, King Nebuchadnezzar, finally you're going to humble yourself. You're going to stand humbly before God, acknowledging who God is. And when you do that, your kingdom is going to be returned to you. And this is, where Nebuch this is where Daniel, he could have stopped right here. He could have said, hey, I've interpreted the dream for you. That's it. I did what you asked me to do. But get in because there's a, again, because there's a concern and a love and a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel doesn't stop there. He says, he, he, he's going to call him to repentance. He's going to call the king to repentance, not because Daniel is, is proud of himself, not because Daniel has a responsibility to, to tell him how wrong he is, not because uh, Daniel thinks he's better than the king. He's going to confront the king because he loves the king. And he wants the king to know the goodness of God. So he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He says, King, man, if you would just humble yourself, if you would stand humbly before God, like maybe God would, would, would not force you to go into this hard time. This is where we say we don't exactly know what happens next. We don't know exactly how Nebuchadnezzar responds. We know that the next verse, verse 29, happens a year later. Verse 29 says, At the end of 12 months, a year later after Daniel interpreted the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon 
And listen to this. Which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Who is the king emphasizing in, these, in that verse? You hear it. Which I have built with my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. Daniel still, ha- or Nebuchadnezzar has not learned He still looks at all his kingdom. He looks at this great kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom in the world at that time. And he says, look what I've done. It's all about me. And this is where God's going to say, what is my responsibility? God's saying, I want Nebuchadnezzar to know who I am. I want Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself and come into a relationship with me. And so verse 33 It says, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet from the dew of heaven till his hair grew, as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. This lasted for seven years. For seven years, this is the state that, that Nebuchadnezzar found himself in. Because he would not submit himself. He would not... Stand humble before God and acknowledge God's hand in his life. Acknowledge God's hand in the world. So it says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason was returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He says, All inhabitants of the earth, verse 35, are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to God's will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled for him to finally acknowledge who God was. And I said, this is a theme throughout this entire chapter. It deals with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God is in control of all things. That God is in control of all peoples, of all kingdoms, of all lives. Not ourselves. And this is the, this is the, the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And, and God tried many different ways to get this message across to Nebuchadnezzar. He tried to, to give him the, the, the dream in chapter 2. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, my kingdom is going to last forever, not yours. But Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't understand it. Chapter 4, God sends, God gives Daniel the interpretation. And Daniel says, hey, king, if you just humble yourself before God, like maybe this doesn't have to happen. And the king won't do it. The king continues to look and say, look how great I am. Look at all that I have done. And God says, I'm going to do what I have to do to get your attention, to help you learn this lesson, that God is the one who is in charge. And we've got to understand, well, what is, what is this story? What is Nebuchadnezzar learning this lesson, what does it have to do with you and me? Like, how does this apply, uh, apply to our life? I think there's a couple ways for us to understand this. I think the one, one question you have to ask yourself is, are you living your life as if it depends on you? Are you living your life as if it depends on you? You make some good decisions, you get blessed, it's because I'm good. You make some poor decisions, You go through some hardship, it's because I'm bad. Are you living your life as if it depends on you? Second question I think you have to wrestle with is, is there a situation in your life right now? 
Is there a situation in your life that you're saying, you know what, this is because of me? Is there a situation in your life that you're saying, man, it doesn't seem like God is in control of this. And so I'm losing my faith. I'm losing my, my, my sight of God, my faith in him, because God doesn't have control over this situation. Third question I think you have to ask yourself, dealing with the sovereignty of God, is do you theologically, mentally, do you get it? Like, yeah, like, like theologically, I know what the Bible says. I know that the Bible says that God isn't in charge. I, I, I get that. But practically, maybe we don't live it. Like theologically, like mentally, yes, I get it. But then like in day-to-day life, it's a little harder to believe that because we can just look at what's around us. So like I said, there are three enemies, I think, to us embracing this idea about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that God is ultimate, that God is the one who is ultimately in control of all kingdoms and people and lives. Three enemies of believing this are pride and shame and fear. And the first one, pride. See, when we look at the sovereignty of God, and we say, okay, well, God is in control of all things. The problem is, is we begin to, we begin to look at the world around us. We look at all around us, and we can conclude that human power and, and glory is a result of our own intellect, the result of our own abilities, our own accomplishments. We look around us and say, well, look at all that's been accomplished. It's because of me, because I've done these things, because I have these gifts, because I have these skills, because I have this personality, because I have this knowledge. All these things in my life are because of me. I've gone and done them. And this, is where, this is where we look and say, uh, we love the story of a self-made man. We love the story of, of a rags to riches story. Like, don't we love those types of stories? Like, this is, this is Super Bowl Sunday. So we can look and say, there's a player that plays for the New England Patriots by the name of Chris Hogan. And we love a guy like Chris Hogan. Chris Hogan is one of those rags to riches stories. He's a guy who, coming out of high school, he was too small to play college football. They said, nope, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You can't play college football. So he played lacrosse. Became a very successful lacrosse player. Uh, won uh, some awards as a college lacrosse player. And it ended up, he graduated college and had one year left of eligibility. And he said, I'm going to go try my, my hand out at football. But none of the big schools would give him a shot. So he played at a small school named uh, Mammoth. Mammoth. Mammoth? Mammoth. 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 He played, he played there. And uh, ended up graduating college, uh, getting done. And, and he ended up getting um, a chance to play in the NFL. The problem is, he just wasn't big enough. So he bounced around a couple different NFL teams until finally this year, he signed with the New England Patriots. If you know anything about, about, about Chris Hogan, he was, the, he was the hero in the conference championship game last, uh, two weeks ago that gave the New England Patriots the right to play in the Super Bowl. He caught uh, eight balls for 180 uh, yards. I think he had two touchdowns. And this guy went from being a nothing to a hero. We love that kind of story. Like, we love to think that could happen to me. Like, if I just work hard, and if I, if I go to school, and I do these things, like, I could have one of those stories, and I could improve my life and make it so much better. And so we say, man, if I could just, if I could just take charge of my own life, if I could make my own breaks, like, if I could just maybe just study a little bit harder, if I could just work a little bit longer, if I could plan better than the next guy, then that would allow me to get ahead, allow me to succeed in life. 
Listen, there's nothing wrong with us working hard. There's nothing wrong with us wanting to be excellent at the things that we do. To make the most of the gifts that God has given us. But we've got to understand those things in our life, those are gifts from God. Like the talents and the abilities that you have, the the education you have, those are gifts from God. And your talent, your brains, your potential, they mean nothing apart from God's provision. Do we understand this? All these things that we have, all these skills, these talents, these opportunities, they mean nothing apart from God's provision. In fact, I was talking to somebody this past week, and uh, this person said to me, you know what, Kevin? You know, you, you're, you're pretty remarkable. Kevin, look at all you've overcome. You know, Kevin, you were, you were uh, in the foster system as a one-year-old boy. And you were adopted, and you overcame the adoption. You overcame the hardships in that. You've got the alcohol fetal stuff that goes inside your blood. Kevin, you've overcome that. Kevin, that's awesome. Kevin, you know, you were, you were married young. Kevin, you had, you had a baby at 19 years old. Kevin, look at all you've done now, Kevin. Look at you. You're a, you're, you're a pastor at church. You're, how old am I? 34 years old. And you pastor at church. Look at all that you've done, Kevin. And I had to say, no, listen, stop. Stop. Because if I'm going to be honest, I'm just as broken as the next guy. But for the grace of God, that God has worked in my life. And anything in my life that is worthy of admiration, it's not because I'm great. It's because God is great. Because God has been faithful. Because the grace of God in, in, in orchestrating where we are. And yes, that means that we had to follow God. That means that we had to be obedient to his plan and submit ourselves to that. But all that we are today is not because I'm awesome. It's because God is. And God is gracious enough to work through me and, and, and work in my life. And this is where we have to just recognize. Do you recognize God at work? Do you recognize that God is in charge of your life and my life? What is it going to be? What does God have to do to teach us this lesson? That we can't keep putting our confidence in who we are and the great things we are. We can't put our confidence in our education and in what our science book taught us. But we have to put our confidence in who God is. What does God have to do to get that point across to you? See, Nebuchadnezzar, when he thought, man, I've got all this power. I've got all this wisdom. I've got all this accomplishment. I'm the greatest king on the world at that day. I've got all the wealth I could ever imagine. And Nebuchadnezzar thought, man, I've got it all. This is, I'm protected from anything bad happening to me. In a matter of 12 months, the king went from having power over the greatest kingdom on the earth to deny even having power over his mental abilities. Became a crazy man. And this is what we can do. We can heap all of our knowledge and all of our wisdom and all of our success and all of our uh, talent and all of our accomplishments. And we can heap it into a big pile and we can make this mountain of, of marbles. And we can look at this mountain and say, look how great I am. Look, how, look at all these things I've done. Look how wonderful I am. But listen, it's like a mountain of marbles. Because, you know, just a little something in that mountain of marbles is going to come crashing down. It takes so little for that entire thing to come crumbling down. In fact, again, looking at football, 
the, the, the best quarterback in the NFL this year, Matt Ryan, won the MVP last night. Matt Ryan completed 69% of his passes. Every, for every 10 passes he threw, seven passes were caught. Okay, we think that's great. He's so good. But listen, do we understand how small of a difference is between the next guy? Because there's a guy by the name of Jay Cutler who plays for the Chicago Bears. Okay, he's a guy who's going to lose his job. They're going to fire him. They're not going to bring him back to be quarterback in Chicago this year. Okay, Jay Cutler, he, he completed 59% of his passes. Six out of 10 of his passes were caught by somebody else. Do you understand? That's the difference of one pass for every 10. Like that is so small of a difference between being a, 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 a hero and being a failure. This is the difference. Is that small? Are we willing to acknowledge God's hand in our life? To realize, you know, we're not all that great. But we have a great God who is working things in our life. What's it going to take for us to acknowledge that? What is the pride that is stopping you from acknowledging God's work in your life? What God is trying to teach you. What God is trying to bring you through. What's it going to take for us to learn that God is in charge, not us? I think the second enemy for us in believing and embracing in the sovereignty of God is deals with this idea of shame. Deals with this idea of shame. See, the truth is, like, we can trust God's sovereignty when things are going good. Like, when there's good things happening in our life, sure, God, you're great. I believe it. God, you, you, you gave it to me. I believe that. But honestly, sometimes isn't this the truth we need to hear in our bad days? When everything's falling apart? When we're bombarded, bombarded with our failures? I had an example of this just the other, uh, the other day. You know, we've got, we've got all these great kids. My oldest son has turned 15 years old this week. And, uh, and then last night I had this privilege of going on a daddy-daughter date with my daughter Ava. And I think we've got a picture of us together. And uh, that was us. We got to go out to dinner and then go to uh, West Valley High School and have a little dance and play some games together. My daughter comes in and she's got this dress on. She's got her hair done and her nails done. She's smiling. I'm sitting here thinking, why? Why does this girl, little girl love me so much? She's just, Daddy, you're the greatest. Like, no, I'm not. I got Ava, like, I'm not that great. Like, I'm, I'm broken. I've got my issues. And I think about all those times that I'm impatient with my kids. I think about this little girl, and there are nights when I'm like, can't we go to bed? Can just go to bed? I don't want to pray with you. I just want you in bed. I want some quiet time. And here she is looking at me. Dad, I love you. Dad, I dressed up for you today. And it's just this idea that sometimes I don't deserve this little girl. I don't deserve the love that she has for me. And it makes me think just a little bit about God. Reminded me of Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See, God's grace in our lives, is not conditioned by our goodness, but by his love. 
God's grace in our life, it's not because we've earned it. It's not because we're great and good and we've done all these good things. It's because he loves us. God doesn't call us his own. He doesn't call us his son and daughter because we're better than others. He calls us his son and daughter because he loves us. And this is what we have to understand. Now, this doesn't mean that our sin is without consequence. Because like we said, God will do whatever is necessary to help us learn and to call us into himself. Nebuchadnezzar, God had to discipline Nebuchadnezzar and make him go crazy for him to understand who God was. And for me, all God had to do was have a little girl who loves me to help me understand that God's grace covers me even when I don't feel like I'm worthy. And whether God is going to have to be hard with us or whether God just has to be gentle to us, God's motive is always love. Because neither Nebuchadnezzar or I, neither one of us deserve God's grace. Neither one of us deserved it. And this is something that, 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 that God will do whatever is appropriate to, to help us understand this. To break through that we would experience his grace in our lives and understand who he is. I think this is something that there are probably some of us in here that we need to hear today. Oftentimes, it takes Christians a lifetime to understand this principle. That God loves us as children, as his children, not because we're holy, but because he is. God loves us not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done through Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, you look at the end of the story. When God blessed Nebuchadnezzar. God blessed Nebuchadnezzar not when he was great, not when he was a mighty king. God blessed him when he was crazy living like the animals in the field. That's when God's grace came and said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll humble yourself. I love you. Let me, let, let me bless you. Let me come into a relationship with you. Listen, what is it in your past that's stopping you from trusting God, trusting God in your life? You are not bound by that. God does not judge you for that. God loves you. God's grace is available for you today. I think the last enemy to us embracing and, and, and standing humble before God is, is fear. See, what is the thing that you're afraid to let go of? What is it that you are afraid to let go of and finally trust God? Think about Nebuchadnezzar. The things Nebuchadnezzar wanted most, he wanted power. He wanted control. And you think, well, well, if, if Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself and trusts that God is in control, well, doesn't that defeat what he wants to, desperately? This is kind of like this idea. You think about, you ever heard the story about they, they, they put some, some nuts in a jar and they, they, they put a monkey in there. The monkey's got to reach in and try and get the nuts out. And as long as the, the monkey is holding on, he can't get, the, can't get his hand out of the jar. Okay, this is grabbing on and saying, I'm not going to let go of this. Where if he would just let go... What would happen? See, the end of the story, it says that, that Nebuchadnezzar finally humbles himself. He finally acknowledges God's sovereignty. I love this because look what it says in verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. 
See, finally, when he acknowledged who God was, God gave him everything he desperately wanted. What he desperately wanted, what he was afraid to let go of, what he was fearful of losing, that God gave him so much more in the end. This is where we have to understand that God works in mysterious ways. And the things that we hold on to, the things that we say, I'm afraid I can't let go of this. If we would just trust God, man, God redeems that. God gives us more than we could ever imagine. God, God gives us greater things than we could ever imagine. How many of you have seen that in your life? That you try and hold on and control things and say, no, I'm afraid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I can to, to make this happen. The moment we just say, okay, God, I'm going to let it go. Like all of a sudden, there's these whole new world opened up to us. And God blesses and God gives and God redeems in ways that we could ever imagine. And we experience greater things that we could ever imagine if we would just stand humbly before God. I trust that God is at work in our lives. What are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of God changing in your life? I can't say how or what, but I can say that if you trust God's sovereignty in your life, you trust that God is working things out for your good and for his glory, that God does far greater than any of us could ever imagine. One last thing before we close. One last thing I think it's important for us to highlight. Daniel chapter 4. It teaches us that God can heal no matter how hard the heart is. God can change a person's life no matter how hard a person's heart is. King Nebuchadnezzar, his heart was completely hard to the truths of God. I mean, he had heard Daniel's message for years. He'd seen who Daniel's God was for years, and he continued to reject that. Listen, most of us know somebody. Most of us have someone in our life that we've said, man, I've tried to, to share and witness to. I've tried to, to reach and share with who God is. But that person just seems so calloused to the truth. They've become too hardened to believe in who God is. And to, uh, they'll never accept my invitation to come to church. And honest, after all these years of trying to reach somebody, oftentimes we give up. Oftentimes we say, you know, that person is too hard. We've stopped praying. At best, we become pessimistic. And at worst, we stop caring altogether. Listen, whoever that is in your life, remember, no matter how hard a heart is, God's stronger than the hardest heart. You see this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Because God brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. And God begins to change Nebuchadnezzar's life. Listen, God can break the hardest will. God can break the hardest heart of our loved ones. And we just have to keep praying. Keep inviting. Keep, keep sharing because God has the ability to do it. For 20 years, Daniel faithfully testified to God's work in his life. Daniel chapter 4 comes along. God, or Nebuchadnezzar tells the, or Daniel, Daniel tells the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, here's what God's going to do. You need to repent and, and stand humbly before God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. 
A year later, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is crazy like a, like, like a madman. And finally, 30 to 40 years after Nebuchadnezzar first heard about God, after Daniel first witnessed to, to Nebuchadnezzar, 30 to 40 years later, he finally responds. He finally stands humble before God. He says, God, I get it. You're in charge. The message for us is not to give up praying, not to give up working for our loved ones. No matter how hard a heart can be, God can reach the hardest heart and change the hardest life. 